Let's turn our attention to Scripture. Let's, let's open a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we have here to be able to open up your word. And Father, know that when we open this word up, that it's you speaking. And this isn't, uh, this isn't me. This isn't my philosophy. Uh, but God, this is your revelation to us. And so give us hearts that are receptive to, to your voice today as you speak. In thy name we pray. Amen. All right, um, as we mentioned last week, we have three weeks today and two more weeks, and then ultimately we come to a tremendous celebration of Christ's resurrection and for Christians, our resurrection. And we wanted to take these three weeks to maybe deal with kind of the buildup to Easter, talk about that final week of Jesus Christ and some of the major events uh, that took place in his life. And, and we're going to kind of start today by looking at a big overview what was the purpose of Jesus Christ's coming? Now, we know it was to ultimately to give his life as a ransom for many on the cross. But let's even go beyond that. What was God doing? Why did God the Father, why did Jesus Christ want to come down and give his life to ransom a people to himself? And to do that, I want to look at a phrase that we often use in Christianity. But I'm not really sure we fully understand it when we're using it. I want to talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of, of heaven. I mean, we, we say all the time, we use this phrase, you know, when we get saved, we get, become part of the kingdom of God. Or, you know, we, we serve here today as a church family to further the kingdom. Um, if you go just to the book of Matthew, that term is used 53 times in the book of Matthew alone. And, and often what we bring to that equation usually defines what we're thinking about it when we're using that phrase. Today, some people use it, they hear it, and what they're associating it with is, is kind of a moral agenda, a morality, you know, that we're imposing on society. For others, when we use that term, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, it simply means, you know, heaven, it, you know, becoming a Christian, and one day we're going we're gonna to be in heaven, in Christ's day, the Jewish people, if you remember them, they were under the Roman rule. I mean, they weren't slaves to the Romans, but they were second-class citizens. You know, they weren't free. So when they spoke about things like the kingdom of God, when they spoke about the Messiah, when they spoke about the king coming, it brought visions to them of overthrowing the Roman government and the Roman rule, restoring Israel to its glory days. You know, back in the time of David and, and, the, and the time of Solomon. So to talk about the kingdom of God meant to talk about power. It meant to talk about authority. As a matter of fact, the final week of Jesus Christ is, you know, as his ministry has been building, there were zealots who were standing on the edge of, of Christ's audience. They were armed, they were well-organized, they were spoiling for a fight with the Romans. I mean, they wanted to go at it with the Romans. Just one word from Jesus, and the king would have his own army already prepared. Well, folks, I want to be totally honest with you. Um, when it comes to this term, the kingdom of God, um, I find it hard to give you a physical definition of what it is. I mean, I know whenever I use that term, whenever I'm speaking about it, it stirs something within me to speak it. But to, to really nail it down, it's a little more difficult. 
A matter of fact, looking through my Bible, I see that Jesus never really offered a clear definition of the kingdom. Instead of just defining the kingdom, he imparted a vision of it. You know, what is the kingdom like? Often explaining it with stories or describing it in, 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 in parables. So let me, let me give you my best description of what the kingdom of God is. All right, and then we're going to look at it a little bit deeper here. Okay, the kingdom is a literal, tangible time and place. We become part of that kingdom by salvation, by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his payment on the cross, his blood shed as a ransom, as a payment for my sins. That's how a person becomes part of the kingdom. It exists literally right now, but it is not physically in this world that we know and experience every day, but rather it operates as a force in this world, yet it does not force itself on anyone. It has no boundaries. You know, its power is different from any earthly type of a kingdom or power that we have ever known. Matter of fact, remember at the crucifixion, Pilate asked Jesus Christ a question. He said, are you the king of the Jews? And remember what his answer was in John chapter 18? It says, Jesus answered. He said, my kingdom, do we have that up there? Okay. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Christ's answer is, I am a king. He didn't say, one day I'm going to be a king, but he said, I am a king. Christ's kingdom is literal. It was already existing. And it is a force in the world that no one can deny because it's not really part of this world. Well, what I want to do this morning is, um, I want to go to Matthew chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there to Matthew chapter 13. We'll put some of the verses up here, and we're going to skim Matthew chapter 13. Um, we have recorded here a series of parables. There's actually seven parables that are given here where, where Christ is giving us snapshots of kingdom truth. Remember what we said? He, does, he never really totally defines it, but he, he casts a vision. He gives us senses of what the kingdom is like. It's kind of interesting why he was doing this. <clears throat> it says down in verse 10 and 11 there. It says, and the disciples came and they said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. So Christ is saying, I'm going to give you these parables that I'm talking about. It's to stir something within them. To, to help them understand this mystery of the kingdom. To help us understand the mystery of the kingdom. But it is evasive enough that the world, if it wants to, can and will totally miss it. So he started back in chapter, or in chapter 13, verse 1 through 9, and he gave a very familiar parable. We're not going to read this one because, we're, you know, if you've been in church very long, you're familiar with the parable of the sower, 
where, you know, a sower went out to sow his seed and, and you know, they didn't have uh, farm tractors and equipment that specifically put it into the ground, but they would cast it out. And inevitably, as they are casting their seeds, some would fall, fall on hard soil. Some would fall in rocky soil. Some of it would fall amongst the weeds. And other it would find very fertile soil. And it would, it would take root and it would grow and it would sprout and would, would, would produce fruit. So immediately with this parable, Christ makes it clear that his kingdom is not like what we might think about ruling and power and, you know, being in charge. Because one of the kingdom truths, and we don't often look at this with this parable, one of the truths of the parable of the sower is that the kingdom of God comes with a resistible power. The kingdom of God comes with a resistible power. It's not like a nation invading us that takes us over and forces its will upon us. But the power of the kingdom can be resisted. It does not force itself upon us. The seed, the truth is, that is given, it can be ignored. It can fall on a hard life, you know, that doesn't even penetrate the surface. The surface doesn't want anything to be with it. It could fall on soil that is very shallow and, and might give it a little bit of a lip service, but ultimately falls away. It could fall on a life that is so entrenched in this world, consumed by the things of this world, that, that the cares of this world just choke it out. See, that's the power of the kingdom. But ultimately, that, that seed is going to find its way to receptive soil. And when it does, it, it, it produces a harvest unlike anything anybody has ever seen. The seed offers the hope of a crop. But again, its power can be resisted. In other words, no one can force you to become a Christian. No one, your parents can't force you to become a Christian. They can put you in the path of the word of God. They can put you in the path of the truth. They can point you to the right way. They can make sure you're in a place that's going to be encouraging that. But ultimately, nobody can force you to become a Christian. It cannot be mandated. It cannot be legislated. It is something that is freely received. And it has to be received for the right reason. I remember early on in my ministry uh, reading books uh, concerning the end of World War II and missionaries. And uh, at the end of World War II, at the defeat of, of, of Japan, Christian missionaries poured into Japan, having seemingly astounding responses. They came back to the States and they talked about an explosion of converts. I remember hearing one pastor talk about just standing on a corner you know, with a Bible and, and speaking and, and having people, you know, give their lives to Christ and accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. But the problem was, when the missionary left, the church died. You see, they didn't understand the mindset of the Japanese people that when they lost a war, that when they were overrun in a, a defeat and power, that they also thought that you know, their gods got beaten in this. So these gods are the ones that they have to, to worship. So when the missionaries left, the church died because it was only an external acceptance. I mean, that's why, you know, as we pray for the Midas, you know, we pray for the Hendersons who are over in Japan, our missionaries that we support. I mean, the work there is, it's hard. It, 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 it is slow. It's not like after, you know, the World War II. And, and, but, but once again, you know, the seed ultimately 
you know, fell by the wayside. The kingdom, Christ's kingdom, can and it will be resisted by the world in which we live. The second parable that Christ gives is the parable of the tares and the wheat, verse 24, verse 25, and then also down to verse 30. And it says, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. And so when, you know, the servants, you know, talked to the master, you know, who owned the field, down in verse 30, he said, you know, he said, what should we do about this? This is what the master says. He says, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. So he, so he talks about in this kingdom, in this life, there are going to be two kingdoms that are going to be existing side by side. Those made of tares, the unsaved, those of the wheat who are the saved. And, and, and we're existing, we are coexisting together. That's another truth of the kingdom of God. You know, again, it is going to overrun the world, but it is going to be, it's, it's going to be in the midst of the world. In verse 31 through 32, we'll move a little quicker here. It talks about the kingdom <coughs> being like a mustard seed. <coughs> the mustard seed is the smallest of, of the seeds that they had. I mean, seemingly insignificant but he said, when this seed is planted and takes root, it grows. And as it's growing, it is overpowering. In verse 33, he talks about the kingdom being like leaven, you know, that is added to dough. You know, it's almost undetectable, but its influence spreads and it spreads and it fret spreads. I mean, if you take leavened bread and unleavened bread in the very beginning and you put them next to each other, you cannot tell the difference between the two. But ultimately, the leaven will have an effect, and the bread is going to change, and that's going to be the result of it. It's, it's something that happens within it. I mean, in this, he's talking about Christianity as a very, very powerful force, but it doesn't force itself upon anyone. Christianity may seem small and insignificant in the shadow of all the earthly powers that we have around us, the great armies and the militaries and the countries and the weaponry, you know, the greed, the selfishness, it may seem insignificant to it. But when it takes heart, when it takes heart, it changes the life of a person. There's a value to it that outweighs anything that the world can offer. He tells the parable in verse 44 of the, of the hidden treasure of when the man who finds it, he goes away, sells everything he has so he can buy that field, so he can own that treasure. The same of the, the costly pearl. Gives up everything just so he could own this pearl. You see, a, a, a seed, yeast, hidden treasure. I mean, these are Jesus' own metaphors of what the kingdom is like. And, and, and it kind of describes for us a secret force that works from within. I mean, it's almost a force that works in counter to what the world is doing around us. And that is why we as Christians, we need to be careful whenever we enter into arenas of power, you know, things like politics, because it becomes very easy for us to rely on that to build the kingdom. But that's not the kingdom at all. And that's not the kingdom that Christ relied on when he was here. 
have a quote. It's rather long from Philip Yancey. Let me just simply read it for you. It says, the issue that confronts Christians in a secular society must be faced and addressed and legislated. And democracy gives Christians every right to express themselves. But we dare not invest so much in the kingdom of this world that we neglect our main task of introducing people to a different kind of kingdom, one based solely on God's grace and forgiveness. Passing laws to enforce morality serves a necessary function to dam up evil, but it never solves the human problems. If a century from now, all that historians can say about evangelicals is that they stood for family values, then we have failed the mission of Jesus that he gave us to accomplish, to communicate God's reconciling love to sinners. Jesus did not say, all men will know you are my disciples if you just pass laws and suppress immorality and restore decency to family and government. But rather he said, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. He made that statement the night before his death a night when human power represented by the might of Rome and the full force of the Jewish religious authorities collided head-on with God's power. In all his life, Jesus had been involved in a form of cultural wars against the rigid religious establishment in the pagan empire. Yet he responds by giving his life for those who opposed him. On the cross, he forgave them. He came above all to demonstrate love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So folks, I take this time to remind us of this, to remind us of what our true kingdom is and also to remind us of where our true power is because it is so easy for us to stray away from the core of what our Christian faith is. And who have we been called to be? And how we came into the kingdom. And how we passed the kingdom on to others in our family, in our neighborhoods, and at work. I mean, Christ, God gave overpowered people with his love. He overpowered people with his forgiveness. He overpowered people with with how humble he was. I mean, he's God Almighty. And, And the humility that he showed in coming down to this earth. I mean, think about Think about Christ's earthly ministry, how, you know, it all went about from the very outskirts, from his birth. You know, we talk about this. He came in humble circumstances in a manger, a common couple. couple. I mean, this, this, this was God, you know, in that stable. When he grew up and he went through the temptation in the wilderness, Satan gave Christ the choice to be dazzle us, you know, uh, having awe and wonder but Christ resisted the temptation to, you know, cast himself off the, the, the temple walls and, and God would raise him up and everybody would see it and exalt him. Even the miracles that Jesus did, what could have been Christ's opportunity to overpower any doubt that anybody had, any objections that the world had, Christ never used his miracles to force belief. And then at his crucifixion, when all of earthly powers, all of religion, and all of government united against him, Christ met them head on. And it occurred to me this past week, do you know that 
Christ, during that whole process of the crucifixion, the scourging, the beatings, the mockings, the ultimately being nailed to the cross and to be hung there, you know, he only made one request. You know what it was? What's the only thing he asked during that whole time? Anybody remember? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The only thing that he asked, he did make a statement about being thirsty, and they responded to it, but the only thing that he asked in that whole thing, not for deliverance, not from freedom from the pain, not for his enemies to get his comeuppance, but he asked, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At his resurrection, he could have been the, the one undeniable proof you know, that resurrection of who he was. He could have appeared to the world. He could have caught, marched right back into the Sanhedrin, you know, to the high priests and all the Pharisees. He could have marched into the courts of, of Pilate and, and appeared before Herod, but he didn't. He, he showed himself enough to people that lives could be transformed, but he allowed those who would not believe, you know, the power to choose. And again, I say all of this to remind us that God's way of furthering his kingdom has not changed. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. You know, our impact in the world will come as we live and we offer an alternative to the, what the world offers, an alternative to the system. It's not got, our, our, our influence in this world is not going to become by working within it and within their system I'd like you, if you can, to turn to Luke chapter 6. This is going to be a, a, a lengthy portion of scripture I'm going to read for us. But in, in Luke chapter 6, yeah, there's some really difficult in, instruction that's being given to us. And if you have a heading um, ahead of Luke chapter 6 and verse 27, mine says rules of kingdom life. In other words, this is how we're supposed to rule. This is how we're supposed to govern ourselves. And he says here, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, uh, excuse me, if you lend to those to whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners led to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. But merciful, just as your Father is merciful. You see, whenever I live, whenever I act differently than what is expected in the world, I'm speaking to the person's heart. I'm speaking to the person's soul. So when I love my enemy, when we turn the other cheek, when we often, 
offer forgiveness to somebody, even when they don't ask us for forgiveness. Every single time I'm doing that, I am plugging into the kingdom and to the, the power of the kingdom that is so different from this world. We often forget that the injustice of this world, there are opportunities for us to show Jesus Christ. That's what Christ did at the crucifixion, the greatest injustice ever, an opportunity to Father forgive them for they know not what they do. Think about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it talks about lawsuits and disputes amongst believers and going to court and, and you know, trying to get justice. And Remember what it says there in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? It says, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? You see, whenever I act differently than what the world would expect, you know, justice, even the score, you know, level the playing field, whenever I act differently from that, I am given the opportunity for Jesus Christ to shine through me. But we fight, we fight for justice. We fight for fairness because our eyes are on the world. You know, and, and, and we want Christ's kingdom. We want it to be here and now. And we, as a result, we often lose the, lose the power of forgiveness, the power of giving mercy, giving grace to somebody, the power to change the heart, not just change the outward of a man, but the power to touch the heart of a man, one who gives forgiveness and grace and mercy. That's what Christ wants us to do, wants us to touch. I mean, if I think at Christ, back to Christ's ascension, when he went back into heaven, remember his disciples had a question for him. They said, Jesus, is this the time that you are restoring the kingdom? Is this the time? Right now, are you doing it? And he gives them this answer in Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed for his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. I mean, in other words... There's going to be a time when Christ's kingdom is literally going to come. He says, it's, it's not for you for me to tell the times that, you know, the Father has that fixed. But he goes on and says, until that time comes, I want you to carry on the ministry that I came here to carry on. And there's no indication today that that ministry has changed. It's the same for this church. It's the same for, for me as a Christian. You know, we're supposed to be different. We have a different kingdom. We have a, a different focus. Now, I got to be honest with you. This all sounds great talking about this here right now, you know, in the comfort of, of our sanctuary here. It's a little more difficult when we get out into the world when we begin to, to live it. You know, it sounds great, you know, to have Christ's humility and, 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 and have the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and the love, you know, and, and, and wanting to love, you know, people to Christ. Um, but the truth is we're not called just to live it here. We're called to go out into a world. And that same world that Christ walked into and lived differently, we are called to go into and to live differently. And that means going against our own sin nature of self-preservation. That means I may have to accept being wronged by somebody else. 
It means I'm going to give somebody grace. I'm going to give them mercy. I'm going to give them love, even if they don't deserve it. My Christian witness isn't going to be my morality. But my Christian witness is going to be that I'm going to live like Jesus Christ lived. I'm going to have that character, that nature, that, again, that love, mercy, that forgiveness that, that he had. I mean, this kingdom, if you're a Christian, this kingdom that we are a part of, that you are a part of today, it is so different than anything we have ever known. It, the battle that we are fighting for this kingdom, it, 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 it's not like any battle that the world has ever known. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it talks about, it says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers, against powers, against the worldly forces of darkness. That's what we're battling here, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. You see, ours is a spiritual battle. It's not a physical battle where, where you know, we can tangibly, on this side of eternity, you know, see that we own something, that we have conquered something. You know, it, it's a spiritual battle, and so our weapons are not physical, they're spiritual. He'll go on in, in, in Ephesians 6 and talks about our loins of truth. Talks about the breastplate of righteousness and, and the gospel of peace and the, the shield of faith and the, the, the helmet of salvation and, and, the, and the sword, which is the word of God. These are all different weapons for our kingdom that we're called as Christians to focus on. Not the forces of this world that give power, but the spiritual kingdom, those forces that give us power. So I want you to think about the relationships that you have in your life. I want you to think about your home, your relationship with your wife, your husband, your kids. I want you to think about the relationships that you have with your neighbors or, or people you, you bounce, you know, in, run into at work, in the break room, whatever it might be. Undoubtedly, in all of those relationships... There are situations, there are people who bring conflict in your life, that bring pain into your life. And yeah, let's acknowledge it. a lot of times it is undeserved pain. My question for us as we consider the kingdom and the powers of the kingdom is, how are we reacting when we are wronged? How are we reacting in this world that is not our own? We often only see the problem, not the opportunity that we have at that moment when we are wrong, I have an opportunity. Like Jesus Christ had the opportunity on the cross to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. To show grace, to show mercy, to show forgiveness. Those things are always undeserved. God gave them to me through his son, Jesus Christ, not because of who I am, but in spite of who I am. It was undeserved merit that he gave to me. And now we have the power. If you're a Christian, you have the power to touch, to transform the hardness of other people's lives with that same grace and mercy and forgiveness. God gave them to you. He gave them to me. Now I'm asked to give them to the people in my life. And it is those things, those powers that Christ is using to build his kingdom. So again, let me ask you this. How are you doing in this? How are you doing in these relationships? I mean, it's so easy to get sucked into the world and the attitude of the world that when we're wrong, man, my dander gets up, the hair on the back of my head, 
You know, I get, my fists are clenched and I'm ready for a fight. And they're going to get one. But Christ says, no, that is an opportunity that I have to show the difference of Christ. Now, again, there's times we're going to have to stand on right. It's not talking about compromising, those sorts of things. But there's a heart about it. I mean, you know, when Christ dealt with sin in, in the world, he, he just, the, the people he talked to never went away thinking, man, he's judgmental. Man, he's pointing the finger. I mean, they never went away with that, that, that the feeling, the sense that even when, you know, he was taking those stands, that he was calling them out. So, folks, how are we doing with this in our life? I mean, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where all these things that we're about to celebrate, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our salvation, being part of that kingdom, it all comes together here as he turns to us and says, it's not for you to know when I'm going to return and establish this kingdom, but until I do, I want you to do my work. I want you to be a witness to me. I want you to be Christ to your neighborhood. I want you to be Christ at work. I want you to be Jesus Christ in your home, whatever that might be. It's not easy, but it's what the Holy Spirit is trying to do through us. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 encourages us. It says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while you have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So again, as we close in prayer here, I'm going to give you a moment to just quietly maybe think about your relationships. How are you doing in this? Is there a relationship you need to take to God and say, Lord, forgive me for this and help me, you know, to react to them as you would react to them? Is there, is there a relationship? Can Christ begin to use you in that person's life to make a difference for the kingdom? So let's just quietly pray and then I'll lead us in a word of prayer. Father God, I confess to you that you know, my, my human nature, my sin nature, Father, is like a fish out of water in the kingdom. And every, everything within me wants me to, you know, even the score, to get justice, to right a wrong. God, sometimes that's not what you're asking us to do. And I, I just pray that you would help us to be sensitive to you to saturate all of our relationships through you. You know, for the Holy Spirit, Father, to give us guidance and direction. I need it, Father. Because if I just rely on my own experience, if I just rely on my feelings, Father, I'm going to stray from your kingdom. And so as, as we've, you've placed on our hearts relationships, Lord, that we need to maybe restore or we need to show grace and mercy to, Father, I pray for the strength when we leave here you know, to act upon what you have placed in our hearts. Thank you, Lord. In thy son's name we pray. Amen.